Radio, welcome back everybody to another episode, just me on my own today. So um, for those of you who don't know, I make part of my living growing uh, heirloom seedlings and uh, produce, vegetable produce, uh, which I sell at the, mainly at the Kalamunda Farmers Market, but also a bit from home and also uh, uh, we live in the Carmel Bickley Valley, so there's a lot of wineries, restaurants and that around here and some of those are, yeah, by beetroots and other various stuff of us. So um, anyway, one of the things I get asked about the most uh, and which interestingly enough, especially since COVID, I've noticed like a real sort of increase in, uh, increase in interest in this area is how do people basically set themselves up, how to grow for themselves. Because, look, we all saw what happened with COVID and, you know, that's one thing aside. Um, but, uh, you know, the supermarkets realise the supermarkets are all cool when they're open. Uh, not so cool when they're not open, you know. And um, there's a, the, the, it's a bit of a deep rabbit hole and basically, um, you know, this it's called permaculture, really, is uh, what this is all about. And uh, according to... Uh, the interweb permaculture is the conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive ecosystems which have diversity, stability and the resistance of natural ecosystems. So, you know, it's kind of in America, they sort of call it homesteading um, and it's it's a way of, you know, being more self-sufficient and, uh, you know, growing your own stuff. And look, there's various reasons, you know, why uh, why you should do that, and um, we'll we'll get it, we'll get into all that, obviously. Um, so, um, you know, one thing I'll say starting out is that I'm not professionally trained in this at all, but it's been like something I've been interested in all my life. Um, even from when I was a little kid, my old man had a small veggie garden. It was just something that kind of like I don't know, I can't couldn't put my finger on it, but it was just something about it that just I really enjoyed that whole process. Um, so, yeah, but I've been doing this for about, so heirlooms, I've been at the markets for full time for six years now, uh, coming up this winter at the end of this season. I'll be there for, would have been there for six years and, yeah, probably about another 10 before that, sort of just slowly getting into it and realising uh, the whole thing about heirlooms and, you know, old strains kept pure. Uh, um, this is just this is just kind of like a basic overview of what I've learned. And I, I tell people, right, it's uh, it's a bit like uh, gardening. You know, there's a few things I learned at the start. And one of the things I tell people, um, you know, when I go to their places and help them get set up, is that one thing you've got to learn about gardening, right, is that it's never perfect. There's always something that's dying. And there's always something that doesn't make it. You know, a good seed germination rate is 90%. So 10% still doesn't make it. Um, but people tend to focus, for some reason, they tend to focus on the 
you know, the aspect of and I'll have people come to the store all the time and say, oh, I can't grow tomatoes or oh, I can't grow this, I can't grow that. And I tell people, right, gardening, it's like a cake recipe, right? It's only a few simple ingredients, really, honestly. You know, one or two things like a cake, flour, sugar, eggs, right, a couple other things. But you take one of those things out, it's not much of a cake, right? Gardening is the same. And part of it is just failure. Like, it's just inevitable and you know you learn as you go and some years like things just don't work out and you don't always even get to find out why but what you got to do is you you got to not let that stop you you know and the guy that taught me you know he said that to me and 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 i realized oh there's things i don't grow anymore because i tried it once or twice and then it didn't work out and yeah so um you just got to accept that part of it i think the other thing is as humans we always have this picture of our garden of like you know how a perfect garden would look and it puts us off starting i tell people all the time like just start somewhere one garden bed like a few pots or whatever um and it's actually the most sensible way to get into it i tell people when you get into it right it's a 10-year plan think about it like that honestly you're not going to conquer it in a year or two but after 10 years you can honestly in even in a shockingly small space you'd be surprised um you know what you can actually grow so um why should you grow that's the first thing I, I usually talk about so as i said yeah this is a talk i've done at the calamunda farmers markets a few times so i thought i'll put it down in a podcast so why should you grow well this is a really deep rabbit hole right and look um you can you can mount a really good argument right that you know we need supermarkets how do you feed the masses right but i'll counter argue that and say well if everybody was growing a bit themselves you know there's a lot of things that we wouldn't that we rely on today that we wouldn't necessarily need now i'll give an example i can't remember there was some european um area shire council right that um gave out free chickens to everybody right like two or three chickens to every household and you wouldn't believe what it did like it cut down on the waste they saved like millions of dollars um, and then you've got people, you know, getting free eggs, eating, you know, healthy, nutritious eggs and, you know, getting rid of their garden scraps. And, um, you know, it's just an example of how a small thing can actually make like a big difference. You know, the other thing is there's something happens, right? And like, <laughs> it's a funny thing in six years now, I've probably got about maybe 15, 30 customers who have literally bought heirlooms off me come back grow on the stuff eating the produce and said like something happened like something happened to me what happened you know <laughs> and uh not laughing but uh i think it's quite funny right because this is how i've thought about this a lot right because part of it, what attracted me to it was start was just some kind of like uh i can't even describe it but some kind of um yeah, just organic and earth or pull towards like wanting to like grow you know and be as much stuff as possible and be as just self-sufficient as possible i think one of my early thoughts was like i always wanted to get my life to a point where like i don't rely on society for anything food water like nothing and like you know that's obviously hard to do and you know i've taken big steps and to be honest you know other than power and water we're not off grid but you know as uh, i'll explain through the podcast you'll see uh you know we've made a lot of steps towards uh 
having a smaller footprint. So what is it? What is about that so attractive, right? Um, what happens is when people come to the store and they ask me that, I tell them this, right? I stretch my arms out like as wide as I can stretch them out. And I say, see this, right? This is how long humans have been alive. This, and it doesn't matter if you're atheist, agnostic, whatever, Christian, Muslim. doesn't matter what religion you are, right? Let's just say this is how long humans have been alive. Then I pinch my finger and a thumb together on one end, right? And I leave a gap of like about a millimetre. And I say, this is how long we've been living in houses and going to supermarkets. All the rest of this was hunter-gatherer. And I think that's why it's so connected to our DNA. That's why it's so satisfying. And that's why, you know, we're seeing a big shift back towards it. Another funny little story I've got to tell, right? So I've got to tell you about a guy. Hopefully I'm going to have him on soon. Uh, the guy in the hat, Tim, from Beat the Reset on Instagram. Now, I got, he got recommended to me by my mate Graham, and I, I won't go into it now. But um, this guy is... He's a bit of a, a commodities expert um, and a fine, bit of a financial guru, understands how the banks run. He's written two very good books, which I read, and like I said, we'll go on to that another point. But, you know, anyway, one day he gets talking on there and he, he's, he's really good to listen to. Looking up on Instagram, he goes live twice a week and he goes on like a bit of a rant, but it's not a rant. Um, and look, I don't know how he does it, to be honest. It's quite a performance, but anyway... Got talking and he does engage with the with the viewers and they're talking, you know, what is the best system? Capitalism, socialism, like talking about, you know, these are all kind of people that I would call that are awake, uh, not asleep at the wheel, the people that go on there and, you know, people that are also smart with their money. And so, you know, I asked the question, I was very curious, you know, so I typed in there, I said, well, you know, what what do you think is the best system, Tim? What do you think? You know, what should we, we be doing? as humans and he said and uh, this is when i fell in love with the guy in the hat i had a bit of a bromance crush i must admit um when he said you know the best system for humans is hunter gatherer living in communities dunbar's number if you don't know what that is look that up you know living in communities about 100 120 you know growing produce swapping with your neighbor you know swapping proteins fruit like all sorts of stuff like that's how we should be living and i think you know that's why people are have drawn back to it it's you know it's why like you know it's amazing how many people come to my house right that haven't actually tasted meat cooked over wood coals right because barbecuing in australia is cool right but that's just grilling really right humans have been cooking over fire for thousands of years like i said however long you've been alive I couldn't tell you right how many people come to my house and I cook them like some kind of meat over fire and the same thing happened. They're like, oh my God, like what is this? And then I just explained to them, this is what we've just been doing. Like this is why it's so good. You know, you go to like the barbecue comps, there's a whole comp scene. No one wins on gas, right? Everyone's cooking on charcoal or wood. So it's the same kind of principle. Um, there's a couple of other reasons why you should grow at home, right? Um, nutrition. One thing I've learned about the, you know, going down the uh, GMO rabbit hole is that if uh, I posted on the Alien Valley Seedlings Facebook page a reel a little while ago from Red Apple in America, who's like a permaculture lady that posts a lot of info. She posted links and graphics to a study that show that, you know, a lot of the GMO produce is down 50% nutrition on what it was going back even just one generation from after the war, right? Because that's another thing I should mention, right? So 
where did this all change, right? Because when I tell the heirloom story, I tell people, right, if you talk to your grandparents and their grandparents, guaranteed most of the shit that they ate and most of the stuff that they ate, sorry, um, they grew themselves, right? So what happened after the war? I'll tell you what happened, freight. Freight changed everything because now with the infrastructure was set up so you can ship stuff around the country. And the problem with heirlooms is like it's a daily pick kind of thing. A lot of the crops don't come all at once, you know, like the Slim Jim eggplants, the harvest is spread out like over weeks, six, eight weeks. So, you know, tomatoes, they you, you pick them like they still last all right. But like after a couple of week or two in the fridge, they need to be eaten. So all this stuff's been modified, right? So the problem is now you go to the supermarket and you shop, you think you're shopping like not bad. And look, in Australia, it's not as bad in the supermarkets, but in certain areas it is. And you don't realize that a lot of that stuff is like 50% down on the nutrition of what it actually should be. So you can look that up. Um, and the other thing is the expense. Like I saw a reel the other day. A lady went into a shop and bought some grapes for her kids. I think it was a, some bananas and a couple of mangoes. It was $72. Now, the price of veggies, right, that's a whole other rabbit hole. That's no, another whole podcast. I won't even get into it, right? But it's getting expensive, right? And, you know, when I decided to like, because I was a tradesman for a long time, right? And kind of decided I had enough of that, right? Working's got knobs on it. I, I want to do just what I want to do, right? So then I look at like, okay, how much money's coming in? And then I realize like, there's a lot of stuff that I could. So if you go over your budget and you shave your budget down, right? Minimize the amount of red meat you buy, there's 30%, right? Go out, catch fish, you know, go hunting. And look, that might not be for everybody, right? But you can source your produce from a local farmer's market. Um, because I'm not really like, I'm definitely not a greenie, right? But I'm definitely not 100% happy with all the farming practices necessarily in Australia. So in order to live kind of true to myself, what we do is we buy all our produce direct from the grower. So example, we had chicken last night. It was from Arlington Farms. They're pasture-raised chickens. You can go there. You can see them walking around in the paddock. Um, they come to the Calamunda markets. It costs a little bit more, but look, when you go through your budget and you get rid of all the stuff that you don't really need and you start, um, you know, for example, you can get your shop, you know, and everybody knows what a shop's like these days, right? It's easy to smash like three, four $400 a week or a fortnight, work that out over a month. And if you're pretty much growing most of your own stuff, particularly if you've got chickens, which I'll mention in a minute, um, you um you can get your bills down to like so that you don't need all that money right and if you go over your lifestyle we you know we moved from a five hundred dollar rental up the hill to like a three hundred and fifty dollar rental on an acre you know like these are the it's an older house yes but you know it's given us the space you know my son walks to school it's given me the space to like have a business to grow the seedlings to turn that land into money you know to making money so then all of a sudden i don't need and then you get to a point where you you get a number and it's like well how much money do you really need every week right and then if you're quite ingenious and i should do another podcast on this because i've got a couple of other online businesses and things that i do there's other ways you can supplement your income all of a sudden you got five or six of them you don't need to go to work on tools like 40 hours a week you know and look i tell people what i'm doing at the markets too right there's only 
me and Crystal from Wild Gaia Plants, we're the only two people in Perth that are selling heirloom seedlings in a plantable pot. Right, so there's what I'm saying is there's plenty of space out there for somebody else to like do it. And if you want to do it, I'm not interested in franchising, right? I'm not interested in money. I tell people, right, like I broke up with money. You got to think about me as a Buddhist, right? So if you want to do it, drop me a message. I will help you set up a, a good little business. And look, you couldn't live on what I make at the markets, but for six months of nine months of the year, you could. Like it's actually like not bad once you get your bills down, like I said. Anyway, I'm getting a bit off track, but these are all reasons why you should grow your own, the nutrition and the cost. The other thing is we've got to predict, protect future seed stocks, right? Like really what I see myself as is a seed saver. And I see myself as a tiny little link in a chain that goes back literally hundreds and thousands of years. You know, I've got organic certified seed that's like 260-year-old San Marzano tomatoes from the Italians that was bought to them from the vice royalty of Peru 260 years ago. They grew them on the side of Mount Vesuvius. And now you can grow those plants, right? I've got 400-year-old French rock melons that were first recorded in a bishop's garden, you know. Um, so I'm a part of that chain. I'm keeping that going. Why is that important, right? Why do people need to do this? Because I'll give you an example. Monsanto owns most of the seed in America. And what they do is they treat the seed level so that they don't have to spray it or treat it in the field. So they're GMOing the seed now. And you can look at millions and acres of commercially like growing stuff and it's just not sustainable at the current demand levels. Uh, science will argue against this, but like I said before, if everyone was growing a bit at home, it would be less pressure on that part of the market. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother thing. Uh, all right, so moving on. Uh, the other thing is, oh yeah, I should say is um, one thing about gardening is working in the garden, right? It's cheaper than therapy. Now, science has also proven that if you just touch dirt every day, right, you'll live average five to seven years longer, right? I've got to tell you a quick story. I heard this guy on Rogan, Gary Brecker, right? For 20 years or whatever, basically he predicted people's deaths down to like, the month based on the 10-year history medical records, right? And he basically says, I'll sum up a whole podcast for you, right? <clears throat> and he basically says, people are getting deficiency in sunlight. Now, if you get early morning sunlight, right, you touch dirt, in other words, take your shoes off, go out, walk around outside, do all those, like, eat healthy things, that's how you add seven to nine years average to your life. Just simple as that. Now, there's more to it. Look up that guy, Gary Brecker. But, yeah, it's... It's been proven, um, you know, same with mental health. If you touch dirt, it's been proven, you know, there's chemicals in the dirt that, you know, help with uh, mental health on, you know, there's something about there being out there that's just, uh, you know, all jokes aside, it's it's that connection to our past again. I think that brings us peace. And you ask anyone that's into gardening, if you're listening to this, you'll probably know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so, all right, let's keep moving. So setting up your yard. First thing I want to talk about there, setting up your yards, right? If you don't already have chickens, one of the most important things you should get is chickens. Um, as I mentioned before, they're just, yeah, just every place should have them. And look, you only need a small area. Um, we've got quite a big run, but we're lucky we've got space. But we've got 
So we've got an old Henny Penny. She's getting pretty old now, so we keep her separate from the other ones. But she's got, like, we had an old swing set that was covered with chicken wire. She goes in there, and we just, like, drag it around the yard every couple of days or whatever. Um, and then she's got a completely enclosed, like, what I would call, like, hard wire mesh, basically, like a little dog kennel kind of thing, but, you know, reasonable size. Um, like a little mini house, but she sleeps in there at night, so completely fox-proof. Um, but, yeah, you don't need a lot of area. You can move them around. People make wire tunnels, but chooks are one of the best things because instead of throwing your scraps out now, you feed them to the chooks or you make compost out of them, which we'll talk about later. And the good thing is, like I said, they turn them into eggs, right? And they're just something about having chooks around that, yeah, they're just amazing for a garden. You can use them to, like, you know, like if I'm getting a lot of caterpillars on my broccolis because I don't spray, and I'll get into that as well, how you can have a garden where you don't need to spray. Um, so I just put the chooks in there for a little while, and I'll supervise them, and, you know, I'll move them on. But you'll find they kind of get to know. They're not stupid. Like mine, no, if they go into the beds and they start ripping shit up, I'll come over. So, yeah, if you don't have chooks, number one thing I can recommend you get is chooks. Uh, even if you get some small silky bantams or all that, there's a whole nother podcast. Um, so now when you're setting up your yard, everybody's yard is different. So really what you got to do is you got to look at where the sun comes up, where it goes down, where it gets sun, where it doesn't. And then obviously in winter, the sun's going to lean over quite a bit more of an angle to the north, uh, depending on where you live, obviously. Um, but yeah, so you need to just look at where gets sun, where, where it doesn't all that sort of stuff. And then you'll position, um, you know, the other thing you got to remember is what the sun bounces off because radiant heat is a real problem here in Australia, especially in summer. If you put your tomatoes right up against a metallic fence, like there'll be 60, 70 degrees coming off that fence on a hot day. So you're literally, you know, going to kill them. You also radiant heat comes off, um, you know, uh, paving. So you've got to be careful about that. Um, we'll talk about that um, when we get to pots, keeping them on wood um, above the paving. But yeah, paving gets hot. And if you've got a bed in the middle of paving with a metal fence, you know, you've got a, a, a problem. So you want to set your beds up in the sunniest position. You can always hang shade cloth uh, later, you know. Um, there's a couple of different ways you can go with a garden bed. Now, depending on your dirt, if you've just got flat ground, you can just make garden beds on the ground. Um, if you've got like a block that's slightly sloped, you're obviously going to need like raised garden beds, the wood to keep all your soil from running away down the hill. Now, generally, most people these days go for raised garden beds. It's the most cost-effective kind of way. Um, and there's a couple of ways to go about that, and I can save you the time, right? You can buy, now, when you go to buy a treated pine, there's two different types. One's used for building, and one's used for, like, yeah, it's called uh, food grade. So you can grow veggies in it. They don't use arsenic. It's perfectly safe. If you go to Bunnings, they'll tell you which one. Now, Bunnings also sell a kit, which is 1.2 by 1.2, and it's a pre-made kit. And I've priced up all the wood in Australia, and trust me, that is the cheapest Kit. Now, you can buy the wood and put it together, but I, it's about, and look, I did make a few big doubles, but it's about the same price as the kit. Um, the only thing I would recommend is the screws that come with the kit, like they're no good. 
get some like good proper stainless screws and screw them together because what happens i've found some of the pine is still a bit green and you put them together and then after three six months it starts to twist and if the screws are and i would recommend because there's only two screw holes in each board i'd recommend three but yeah anyway or obviously repurpose timber if you can find timber around old railway sleepers you know old garden beds uh second hand ones online marketplace anyway you can put them together um <clears throat> the good thing about the kit ones that i've got is when i go if i move from this place i can take them with me now the metal beds i'll mention right the metal beds aren't bad but there's a few things about them i don't like the ones that are pretty high right all veggies only draw from 30 to 50 centimeters deep soil that's it really anything beyond that is not affecting them so those big high ones right look if you've got a back issue and you can't bend over and you want some stuff up high or you just want something to look good but the pro they're problematic you've got to fill the bottom with something you've got a lot of wasted soil you have drainage issues you know, I, my advice is keep them small just like the little you know i think those ones from bunnings are about 60 centimeters high i don't fill them up all the way um but yeah the metal ones are cool if you especially if you get them free the problem is as well right the metal heats up in summer so look i've got a couple but i wouldn't buy them again but what i do is i put the shade cloth i put shade cloth around the metal it stops the metal from heating up so yeah they the metal ones look if you can get them for the right price they're okay but they're pretty expensive too um, they look nice um, and if you are going to get them get the smaller ones but yeah just be aware of that um, so yeah obviously wickling beds and aquaponics i won't sort of go into that right now but a couple of things about that look wickling wickling beds are good there's no doubt about it and i've had them to me it's just like i'm a guy so everything i'm going to tell you from now on as well right is like i'm a minimalist i'm like i'm the dude who just I, it's not that i don't like to spend money it's just that i like to be as cost effective as possible and I just don't like to spend money on things that I don't have to kind of thing. And that's why I try to keep everything yeah, on the cheap, on the low down. Um, so, yeah, wickling beds. Look, aquaponics, definitely 100%. If you want to get into that, there's a couple of people online. Uh, look up Perth Aquaponics. Brian, he's down in Gosnells. He's got an awesome setup. He'll help you get it set up. It's definitely a very effective way. It does cost money to set up as well. Um but yeah, it's you'll grow a lot more shit a lot faster, 100%. Um, so yeah, also another thing I should mention is pots. So before we leave garden beds, pots is actually a really good underestimated way to grow veggies. Um, there's a couple of things you want to do. Um, two things. The trick with pots, I reckon, is A, the size. I tell people minimum 40, 50 centimetres minimum, right? Because anything smaller than that, plants still will grow but it's going to have like a bonsai effect it's going to restrict the roots so yeah if you can you can grow most veggies and like even i've grown watermelon out of pots right because you're only really using the pot for a base and what happens is with a pot you generally put a good quality soil because a lot of people you know will get to soil uh shortly but you know a lot of people just plant their veggies in the ground and hope for the best whereas a pot you generally go buy some decent potting mix or something it's probably got some food in it you're more likely to just sort of look after it the good thing about pots too right is you can move them around so in the summer you can bring them out of that hot afternoon summer in the winter you can push them out into the full sun um, but yeah to another trick with pots right don't put them on hot ground right 
because it really will heat up and do wreak damage um, and you'll be surprised how much it'll kill them. The other thing is in winter, if you put a pot on the ground, you think it's draining, but it's not. Because at the end of winter, with pots, I'd repot all my pots twice a year. Um, and what I do there basically is just pull the pot out. You take, knock all the soil off and you want to remove about 30% to 50% of the roots. So just tidy the roots up, like loosen it up a bit then put it back in fresh soil. I always give it a bath in sea soil um, while I'm doing organising the pot because that will help eliminate root shock. And like I wouldn't do it in hot summer. So I do it at the end of summer and the end of winter. Anyway, you pull your pots that have been sitting on the ground at the end of winter, they're going to be waterlogged. So you want that water going in, but you also want it going out because people don't realise, right, that most roots, actually all roots, especially like tomatoes and those kind of varieties, chilies they actually get their oxygen in the same way we do and that's from the air not from the water we think that we're giving them oxygen through the water so if they're completely waterlogged right it's kind of like drowning and that's why tomatoes like the water coming in but they also like the water going out do an experiment right two tomato plants water one every day water one every second or third day the one that you water every second or third day guarantee you'll get 50 to 100 percent more tomatoes off that because, yeah, I think what happens is, right, we drink water every day. So we think they want water every day. And so we tend, but, yeah, like tomatoes especially, like some things like beetroot, they definitely like water every day. They're heavy on the water, especially in summer. But your tomatoes every second or third day only, they want the water coming in and draining out. So what you can do is put, what I do is I keep all my pots on wooden pallets or on like wire mesh tables off the ground if they're small. Keeps them away from the heat. The other thing is the wood from the old pallets, which you can find around building sites or wherever, that draws the water out. And like it make, keeps like a little cool like gap below the plants there, which like the air flows through and it just keeps the ground because the radiant heat, as I said before, will definitely affect, you know, pots in WA. Um, the other thing you've got to remember about pots is uh, food. So... In a garden bed as well, right, this is an important thing to remember. All the food that's in there only will last anywhere between 6 and 12 weeks. Now, if you're growing beetroots, right, and you can grow in those 1.2 by 1.2 boxes, right, so I grow 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 10, 15, 20. I grow 25 beetroots in each box. And when I say beetroots, some of those are two or three bulbs together. Right, so and then you're making like a big like bulbous thing and they're just using the soil and the sun and the water that's a pretty crazy chemical reaction that uses up a lot of nutrients so yeah you've got to think about your garden beds and your pots a bit like a fish tank you've got to keep watering them uh, and you've got to keep feeding them sorry every now and again and there's two ways to do that we'll get to we'll get to food but yeah especially with your pots you got to remember that they're going because it's a small area of soil they're going to use the food up quickly so you you got to make sure you, you keep feeding them all right so we're moving on we'll get on to soil now so number one thing with your soil right the first thing every person should do is do a soil test right now ph tests go get what, a 20 dollars test kit from bunnings comes like in a little box and it's got like a couple of chemicals a liquid and a powder which you mix together with your soil now, there are these probe ones which you point in the ground. I've had them. I don't recommend them. To me, they're just not as accurate. Like the pH test is the good old scientific 
test like it will tell you exactly and i'll tell you the reason um why that's important is that uh what people don't realize is that ph basically goes right from 1 to 14. 7 is considered neutral below that is acidic above that is alkaline now ideal page ph can then be anything sort of from around six to seven to seven and a half as low as maybe five and a half depending on what you're growing um, but the reason that's important is that if your ph is out like if it's five or eight it's a bit like the richter scale right you think oh, i'm only at one point point out you're actually about i don't remember the numbers and the science right so i'm probably going to be wrong on this but it's about a thousand times the difference so that little test every one of those little colors and one of those notches is a huge difference why is that important i explain it to people like this right pH, low wrong ph is like diabetes for plants and if you get people who have like come to me at the market say oh man i feed them and i'm giving them you know sea soul and you know power feed and other stuff but they just don't grow first thing i say to them is have you done a ph test oh no why i said well it's like diabetes for plants right if your ph is out what happens is that they don't the plants don't uptake the nutrients and i won't get into the science of it because i'll mess it up but it basically blocks the pathway for them to be able to pick up the nutrients so you can feed them whatever you want <clears throat> pardon me you can feed them whatever you want it won't make any difference so you've got to make sure so first thing you do is go test your ph right find out what your ph is the good news is the solution for bad ph and look so said so i won't get into it because there are a few things a bit like you know calcium uh, calcium nitrogen phosphorus potassium magnesium and a couple of things which you can add uh, individually but generally even if it's too acidic or too alkaline the cure generally is just better quality soil so compost um, you know go buy like a mushroom compost mix or a garden veggie mix or you know something like that um, and that's generally the best way and then you can do like another another test to uh, find out where you're at uh, you can also do a mineral test if you're up north it's probably worth mentioning like Pilbara geology is a bit different so you can do a mineral test um, to increase your pH you can add lime and magnesium carefully about 100 grams per square meter um, over six months it'll take to like change it um, you can add dolomite as well which contains magnesium um, but again I would do a mineral test before I you know went messing with that alkaline is a little bit harder to rebalance than acidic I've found um, but as I said any kind of uh, you know compost or anything like that will uh, bring it back so yeah pH um, now basically when you go to any uh, soil center they'll generally have a veggie mix so when you get your beds newly unless you might already have really nice soil if someone had a garden there but if you're starting off scratch the first time you're going to have to kind of establish the soil right and mine where i live so it's sand over coffee rock and it's about 500 to a meter of sand over coffee rock so then i put my beds on top of that and the sand actually works all right because it drains it away but there's enough soil there for the for the plants so yeah what i do is i actually most garden centers will have a veggie mix and then i have a premium mix which i don't know why but they usually call that premium mix mushroom compost now the mushroom compost 
can be good, right? But I've actually found it's probably a little bit too rich. Like I had stuff go mad in that and it was kind of like a bit over the top. The other thing is I definitely wouldn't use it at the start of winter because it just gets way too sort of soggy and doesn't have the drainage that the regular veggie mix has. But the regular veggie mix probably a little bit too sandy, like not enough kind of food. So what most people do at my local, um, which is what I do now, is I do a mix. If you ask your local, they'll give you like generally one scoop or of each one for a trailer load and it's usually around even the premium ones about 60 bucks uh, my local and that generally does about i'm thinking it does about six or eight of those 1.2 by 1.2 meter beds now i do top up like once a year but once you get that soil established and you start making your own compost really what you're just doing is yeah little top up so that trailer load will actually do double that it'll do 12 14 beds because i'm only adding a bit to the top um <clears throat> if you're going to use if you're going to go for pots going back to that go to bunnings or your local garden center buy the best quality soil mix you can uh there's various different ones but yeah just get the best one you can um now another thing um with garden beds one of the best things you can do or one of the things you've got to do in my opinion is mulch now you can use pea, I use pea straw, I find that's the best because it just takes longer to break down, but you can use lupin, um, local garden centres, some of them do have it, although it's getting a bit harder to find these days, but I was going to say before, I want to mention Green Life Soil Company in Midland, if you're into heirlooms, old strains, kept pure, all that kind of stuff, they're kind of the most green people in Perth, um, they've got all the good shit uh, down there, they've got all the premium mixes, you know, fruit tree stuff. They sell the pea straw and the lupin as well. Uh, so you can uh, you can uh, get all that stuff there. Um, so yeah, just wanted to shout out to them. So yeah, what that does is it's like shade cloth for the soil. So it stops your soil from heating up, and it also helps the soil retain water because it stays damp under there. The other thing, which um, main benefit, which often gets overlooked your sprinklers if you don't have some kind of pea straw down right like that what all those water droplets are actually compacting the soil and over time especially after summer man that soil is going to be rock hard and it's not going to take the water very well and it's going to compact it and it's going to be super tight around the roots and if you if you're hand watering with a hose you know spraying down it's doing the same thing so it's protecting it from the soil because you want your soil to be nice and fluffy and you know like yeah, don't do, you know, I had some friends that were getting into this one day and look, I won't name them, but they didn't know any better. Um, I went around to have a look and they compacted all the soil down. Now, um, yeah, what people have got to understand is that roots get their oxygen the same way we do. And that's actually from the air, not from the oxygen and that's supplied in the water. So if there's, yeah, you want the soil nice and fluffy, nice and loose so they can, you know, get air around there um rightio moving on soil okay so um i'm not sure if i actually said already <clears throat> my actual mix so yeah i use one part uh of the normal veggie mix one one part like the premium mix and i sometimes i'll put compost in that um as well 
Um, one thing I should mention there, never use black mulch, just because it heats up. Yeah, and it'll it'll get hot. Same with Jarrah. You want something like uh, sitting on the soil, creating like a little, you know, barrier. Um, so, yeah, seasonal soil care. So, <clears throat> basically, at the end of every season, I turn over all my beds. Um, and when I say turn it over, right, you've got to be careful there because you don't literally want to be digging from deep down because, you know, you're establishing a bed. Think about a bed as like a little ecosystem. And if you're digging down too much, right, you're exposing microbes that are down there. That's probably the incorrect term because I'm not a scientist and I just made that shit up. But you're exposing stuff, I know that, that's down there. You can bring it to the surface and it'll kill it off, you know. Um, so when I say turn it over, I'm more just pitchforking it in, sort of loosening it up and not bringing the bottom, you know, to the top. Um, and then look, they will sort of, you know, once a year or so. Each bed's going to need a bit of a, a bit of a top up. They generally get waterlogged at the end of winter too, depending on what you got underneath. If you've got wickling beds, you've got a good drain system, you don't have to worry about that. And if you're on sort of sandy-ish soil, that actually does help when you get good soil on top because it will, it will drain it away as long as it's not heating up too much. Um, <clears throat> so... That's pretty much covered soil. The only other thing is obviously shade. This information is specific to Perth, Western Australia, but at some point you're probably going to have to provide shade or ride it out. You know, the hot days, um, there's ways around that. Um, I don't have shade cloth yet. I have small parts of it, and the quick thing about that is don't buy the green stuff. It's like... Or check the percent because most of that 70 80 percent it blocks out too much sun you want the all the commercial growers use like 30 to 50 percent white 30 35 green life soil company they've got the 35 i'm pretty sure and the 50 so yeah if you if you do need to provide shade and look if you can do it i probably recommend it depending on where you live in perth um it's also wind protection and scientifically proven i'm pretty sure stuff will grow better with that bit of light restricted in summer you can always take it down there's a couple of ways to do it. the way i'm probably going to do it is uh, drop a post in each side of the bed plastic retic over that in a hoop a row of them cover that instead of covering a whole area because i can't cover like an acre so i'll probably just do beds you know um just do them as i go then that way uh, when you move you can always take them with you as well all right so we're going to get on to seed now or growing. Um, so one of the, you know, it's, it's it's a good place to start buying seedlings. But if you're going to get into it seriously, um, really where you want to be at is growing seed. And the other thing is, just while I think of it, I'll mention when people buy seedlings, like, you know, I'll see people buy, they'll buy one tomato plant. Um, now that's okay, but like if something happens to that plant, you got nothing. The other thing is one plant, depending on um, the yields, right? Like I'll give you an example, Tommy Toes, you're looking at somewhere between 10 and 30 kilos. Now 30 kilos is pretty exceptional. Don't know if I've ever actually got that. I think 25, maybe high 20s I've got like off one plant in a season. Um, so, you know, if you're really going to feed like you know a family or a few people one plant just ain't going to cut it over a few months you know um 
Tommy Toes, that's a high yielding plant too. So, you know, gross list, you're probably looking at half that. Same with Black Russians um, and everything else we grow as cherries, which, you know, they go pretty quick. So, yeah, you need more than one. You need to think like in multiples, like you need a patch of tomatoes, right? Now, I understand not everyone's got the space for that, but I'm kind of more talking to the people that want to move to the bigger block or I have got a bit more space, right? You don't plant one cucumber anymore, right? Forget about that. You plant 10, you plant 20 or whatever. And if you've got excess, right, that's fine. But, you know, some of them will drop off. Some of them won't make it. And if you want to get to the point where you're literally, you know, the habit is to go out to the yard and pick for the evening meal instead of like supermarket shop, right? Um, and you can literally get it to the point where, like I don't know if I, know if I mentioned, but, you know, there was a point in our lives where we're doing like a supermarket shop, supermarket shop, you know, every week or so, spending three, four hundred dollars. Now it's like we probably go once a month, and it's like coffee, sugar, you know, a few other bits, basically anything that we don't grow or can't get from the markets, you know. And we skip the fruit and veg section generally, the meat section, all that um, processed food. We Trend, tend to try not to buy anyway we we make cook all our meals so yeah you just need you need lots um but you but you can be done you know the reason i say that is like you and then if you get your life and your bills to a point where like all of a sudden you don't need all that money you don't need to come up with all that money every week to you know pay for expensive shop shopping and you know get rid of uh get rid of the car payments, get rid of the credit cards, all this sort of stuff, you'll find that you don't need as much money as what you think you do, especially if you can grow or buy direct from the the grower yourself. So anyway, sidetrack there. That's cool. That's what I do. <laughs> um, repeating myself, I know. But yeah, so seeds. So really where you want to be is you want to be saving seeds. So a couple of things about that. Um, <clears throat> some things... I will say you are better off buying just because, like, it's too hard. They're too small, it's too fiddly, it's too time-consuming, and they're too easy to get online. You know, we're not in a zombie apocalypse. We don't have to save everything. You can buy a lot of your seed online, you know. So even if you're not seed-saving, you want to be getting in the habit of growing from seed. And then, of course, seed-saving is like, you know, we got things now. So broccoli, I'm going to say... We haven't bought any broccoli, seed, or plants, or anything for probably about six or seven, definitely six, seven years now um, because of the ones that we have just reseed, and that's our broccoli every year. And we have a few different types, purple sprouting, baby bunting, the green, and then we have the uh, broccoli romanesco, uh, which is really cool. It's got the uh, Fibonacci spiral, you know, uh, in them and uh, really cool 2,000 year old probably older but goes back to Roman time so you know yeah we haven't bought broccoli literally for a long time occasionally we'll buy like a bit in the markets off season when we don't have any but yeah we buy them from GMT um, who have been you know Tedesco's have been growing heirloom stuff in Western Australia for over 100 years um, Mike Tedesco's grandfather actually bought out to Nonna's Italian pear, which is like a Western Australian listed heirloom tomato now. 
um, just a bit of side info. So yeah, I buy anything that I don't grow, I buy either off them or Bickley Valley Produce, which is uh, just in the Bickley Valley, a couple of hundred metres from my house. I'm lucky enough, one of the orchards there has basically, it's like a supermarket without all the pack of produce, like just a big veggie shop and a whole heap of other colour stuff. So yeah, buy from them direct whatever we can't grow. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, seeds, I keep getting sidetracked. <laughs> um, the biggest tip I can give you about seed saving, right, is you just wash it, and uh, let it dry on a, I put it on greaseproof paper because it's easier to get it off onto the packets. Clip block bag stored in the pantry away from light. UV light and heat cycles is what will kill seed, so don't store it in the shed. Um, been through people's seed boxes in sheds and, you know, they're all cooked. So store it in the pantry or somewhere you would keep wine, that kind of stable condition. The other thing about seed, or the other thing is, yeah, write on it. Make sure you write on everything right because I guarantee, and I've bought apples from this cart before, that's how I know, you think you'll remember, but you won't. And look, some shit's obvious, like sunflowers and stuff like that, pumpkins. But yeah, you, yeah, write on it. And when you write on it, write on what it is and the date, because that brings me to the next, my next point: seed expiry. There's a lot of bullshit information that goes around. I can tell you, as someone who's been a seed saver for the last ten or fifteen years, most seed only lasts a couple of years. So I used to try to carry sort of four, five, six years ahead. And after about 10 years of doing that, we've, I've got it down to like, so what I do now is I have enough for next year and one more year. So always one year in reserve. And because I record all my germination rates and I've found that, you know, so um, some things when I first got them, my germination rates were like pretty low, 40, 50%. And that was from seed that I bought online from reputable places, but you don't know how old it is. Most seed, after four or five years, the germination rate goes right down to like 10, 20%. So if you've got a packet of something old in the shed, I tell people, because people often ask me, should I throw them out? I say, look, throw them in the ground, one or two might come up. But yeah, in terms of like, you know, I literally have done like the whole Mythbusters thing. I've got 10 years data on seed germination. And after about the third, fourth year, it really starts to drop off. It does vary a bit depending on the plant, admittedly. But yeah, so what I do is I always have enough for one more, one year and one year in advance. And then what I do is I keep seed from each year and I just keep topping that up. And most of my stuff now is either like, honestly, like my Tommy Toes is pretty much a 98, 100% germination rates. Um, I've had them going for a long time now. Um, and I pick my seed from the best couple, obviously. So the best 10% of sort of looking strong seedlings, I'll keep, plant them out in my garden, and then I keep my seed from that. And honestly, within two or three years, I got it from like 50, 60, up to 80, 90. You'll be surprised how quickly if you do that, um, you'll soon get really good, strong strains. Um, so yeah, only lasts a couple of years, two to four years max, I'd say. On most seed all right um, now germination now there's a few ways you can germinate your seed right but the one thing to remember here um, whether you go in the ground or you go in trays the one thing to remember is that for seed to germinate I won't 
go into all the scientific stuff because I don't understand, I, I remember it all. But basically, in layman's terms, for seed to germinate, it needs to come into contact with certain size particles of dirt, basically, right? That's why if you go to Bunnings and you buy the seed raising mix and you actually have a good look at it, you'll notice not a lot of chunky stuff in there. It's mostly pretty fine. Now, I've had success as well, right? Like making, in inverted commas, <laughs> making my own seed raising mix. Right? And what I did was I just sifted potting mix. So I got a good quality potting mix and I sifted it and I just got the small particles out. Now, um, the reason I tell you that, right, is because planting out in, this, in the ground can be pretty decent, right? And what will happen is you do get a better, stronger, kind of faster growing plant because now that's a lie, but it's true. And what I mean by that is if you're planting out beetroots in summer, I always just start them in the ground because you don't want to be mucking around with transplanting because what happens is even if you do all the right things in summer, it's just hot and it doesn't matter. You can bathe them in sea salt and everything I transplant out, I don't know if I've said that before, but I soak everything I transplant out into the ground in sea salt first. And it just helps with root shock, helps eliminate root shock. Because a lot of times you'll buy something, right? You'll put it in the ground and then if it gets root shock, it'll either die or it'll just go dormant. But like anything to like, I've seen tomatoes just sit there for like four weeks and do nothing. You know, whereas like that four weeks, you want them growing, you know. So root shock makes a, a, a big difference to planting stuff out. Most of the year, but you can get away with it. Like, and I find I, I do 90% of my stuff over the year in trays. And the reason I do that is because I can control the environment. So I either start them on heat mats or outside. The other thing is they're off the ground. The everything, all my seedling stuff I recommend is like waist high, chest high, off the ground. And the main reason for that, right, is critters. Because like I've got metal poles, like metal legs, so mice and rats... All that stuff can't climb it um, they can't get up there and you'll be amazed like you know how much stuff likes to eat little baby seedlings and i'll say this you know if you can get a seedling as big as possible before you plant it out it's going to give it like a, a much better chance and you know look you will lose a certain amount of stuff to stuff you plant out in the ground that comes down to pest control which will cover but yeah, if you do plant stuff out in the ground as well, so if I am planting beetroot down in the ground, what I do is I make a little trench, I go along, I'll sprinkle the seed, and then I'll cover that with seed raising mix. So even if I'm planting in the ground, because your ground can be like random, like I take good care of my beds, but you know, like a lot of people just go out the back, make a garden bed, plant shit and hope it grows kind of thing. If you just do that over everything you plant in the ground from now on, guaranteed, and yeah, you buy the buy the seed raising mix, but if you can't get it, sift out. You know, if you, even if if you, I tell you, if you've got really good compost and uh, like a worm farm, and you sift that stuff out, man, that stuff is that is gold, man. Um, and a bit of seed raising mix through that, and like stuff will come up, and then it takes a takes away quickly because you know you've got to get it through that first vulnerable period, right? Think about them as babies. You know, at the start they're vulnerable, and the quicker you can get them up and going so if i do feed anything purposely um which i don't really feed a lot um but i'll get to food but if you do feed purposely it's always like at the start once they get up and going and they get away i don't worry about it too much um so yeah if you can have some kind of propagation house or a greenhouse or anything like that 
um, that's obviously going to make a big difference. And the other thing is get to know soil temps. So either buy a soil thermometer because basically the germination of everything comes down to one thing pretty much and that's temperature. And like I can tell you, tomatoes, 22-24 degrees uh, soil temp. Like that's not ambient temp, that's soil temp for them to germinate. That's why if you're just germinating random outside you, in Perth, man, you're looking way into like October, November before you're going to get that. So that's why you're better off buying seedlings already germinated or start them in a greenhouse. That's that's what we do. We start ours in a greenhouse in August. Um, so yeah, 24 temp, I'll tell you an interesting thing. So chilies are, are more like 28, 30. And the hotter the chili, like the habaneros, scorpions and the reapers that we grow, that we put in our reaper salt that we sell at the markets and our reaper seedlings that we sell as well, they don't germinate until 32 degrees. And when I say 32 degrees, like it's generally somewhere between 10 and 14 days. And it's pretty tricky. They're hard little buggers to grow because, uh, you know, you've got to keep that soil sort of moist uh, as well. You've got it at 32, it'll dry out like the tiny little pods, you know, like I'll dry it in a day or two. So what I do is I put them on the top shelf of my greenhouse where it tends to be, you know, anything I'm germinating that goes hot like that, I put it on the top shelf because it tends to, the water tends to condensate like, yeah, sort of near the roof. Um, and they seem to like it up there. But yeah, it's all about temperature. Um, so get to know your temps. Like you need to know roughly, okay, what is it doing up here? So what I do is I've got probes that I use for my uh, barbecue, like smoking, uh, like on the Weber. I've got probes with a little digital readout and that, goes to an app on my phone so i've got three actually four probes so one at the top one you know quarter of the way three quarters and one on the bottom and the difference like in my greenhouse so even not in this is not summer because obviously in summer i don't keep much in there and it's all opened up and what i do keep in there is low down the rest of the year like yeah i'm using it to germinate or keep stuff alive so yeah, up the top, even say on a winter's day around 20, 22 degrees, it'll be about 55 to 65 degrees up the top of the greenhouse and down the bottom, it'll be about 24, 26. <laughs> yeah, so that's the difference. So, but, but get to know, cause you gotta know, you know, just like, oh, why my tomatoes aren't coming up, right? They could be sitting on like the middle shelf and it's only 18 degrees during the day or something and you need a sustained period um there's more to it than that but yeah that's basically best way uh you know uh so yeah and i should mention i did mention heat mats so i start my stuff on heat mats uh in actually inside the house we've got like a glass room that runs the length of the back of the house uh it's kind of like my son's weight room but we use uh put some white tables in there because one whole wall is all glass i put the heat mats there i normally start stuff there and then i transplant it outside uh in winter it'll go from there to the greenhouse in summer it'll go from there straight to the outside big table which is a mesh big long mesh table which is about yeah sort of chest just under chest high waist high uh, and then the rest of the year will go to the greenhouse now a little bit of a thing about that so if you put that in the greenhouse really and it you don't want to keep it in there for too long because what happens is they get too leggy in their week. 
the quicker you can get them out in full sun the better off and the stronger they'll be because this is one thing that happens with root shock right and i'm going to tell you a story about the big green shed right so i know a lot of people listening to this right everybody listening is going to be agreeing with me right have you ever gone to the big green shed bought something right planted it out and it did okay for a couple of weeks and then it died right and here's the thing about that you thought it was you but it wasn't you i'll tell you what happens they come from these big places right <clears throat> they come from these big massive greenhouses it goes straight to bunnings like on a tuesday or a thursday right i got a cough hang on sick sorry so yeah it goes to bunnings on a tuesday or a thursday you walk in there on a wednesday right and buy it because they pretty much turn over most of their stock weekly uh weekly fortnightly will be 70 80 90 percent of their nursery stock because i know someone who works there uh other big nurseries do this a little bit but it's not as bad but if that stuff looks like it's like the stuff they'll just say comes you know packaged seedlings and they look like they make a lot of them what happens is yeah they come from the nursery they don't get hardened off in the sun they're only there for like a day or two you buy it you come home and here's the thing about root chalk right it's a delayed effect it takes a week or two to even show up so you think it was something that you did and like i've had people even say to me oh, i can't grow tomatoes every time i buy them they go right for a couple of weeks and they die and i'm like it's not you all right just put that thing half shade half sun maybe for a couple of days and then slowly work it out into the sun and you will literally see it getting stronger and when it looks like it's pretty much bulletproof and you give it a bit of a speed of sea salt or something else and you harden off so what happens is after our stuff comes out of the greenhouse it gets potted up we do all our pots by hand into a plantable uh, biodegradable pot it's made from peat basically compressed peat it's glorified cardboard you can make them yourself or you can buy them as well so once they get planted out into that they go onto the table and then it's minimum two weeks before we take them to market because then we know they're bulletproof and that's why so many of my customers come back to me all the time year after year and say man your stuff just goes way better it's way stronger we get more fruit and it's just that little bit of care at the start and just knowing what to do and it's just been trial and error like people say to me sometimes man i get a lot of comments even in the markets people say oh man your seedlings they look they look so good they they look so strong what's your secret and i say kill lots <laughs> that's how i got good at doing this i got, i killed lots first and you literally just you figure out you know what they like and what they don't like and as you can see there's a few small tricks to it but it's 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 not you know too bad so once they get once your seedlings getting to like about that third or fourth side leaf and this is a general rule i'm talking about most veggies but as a rule a lot of people make the mistake as soon as they get one or two leaves they plant them out still very vulnerable it's like taking a newborn out of the crib i tell people wait for that fourth or sort of fifth one and you kind of want to get them as like as big as possible as you can before you plant them out but you don't want to leave them in there too long if that makes sense so as long as you can but as early as possible once you kind of look at it and think it looks bulletproof you want to be planting it out i go as a rough guide i'll i go for three or four side leaves then uh, what i do is <clears throat> as i said before i plant anything out i've got an old wheelbarrow set up near my seedling table and i'll just fill it up with sea salt and I'll soak everything in that. Sometimes I'll put power feed or a bit of other stuff in there, but generally just sea salt. 
and when I'm soaking stuff and I do for planting out but also if I'm want to give like my chilies a good feed I, at once a month or so I'll just soak all my pots in there as well you know and when you say soak probably 10 minutes to half an hour max it doesn't have to be hours um, a lot of it will drain off anyway when you pull them out but yeah you if you soak it in the sea soil before you plant transplant anything out you're going to have a much bigger rate they don't waste their two weeks sicking because a lot of stuff will recover from root shock right but it'll do nothing for like weeks and it's lost time so yeah um so i do that then i plant them out um be careful when stuff's small because you've got to remember snails and all that you know slaters and all that they like all that real small stuff so if it's important to you what i do is i go out and put a bucket over it at night or like just some kind of container and then uh, i'll get to pest control uh in a sec but yeah um just keep an eye on them at the start because they're vulnerable if i am going to feed them with some kind of feed power feed like you know watering can or if you've got a worm farm or anything like that now's the time like do it at the start and then once they sort of get up and going, I kind of back the food off to more like a slow-release fertilizer. So that brings me to food. Um, so what thing you got to remember, like I said before, about food in beds is that after about three months, you know, all the food in that soil is gone. So you got to think about it like a fish tank. you got to feed it. You don't have to feed it every day, but you got to feed it. And you think about all the crazy chemicals and nutrients required to like produce, you know, some like a watermelon or something like that. It's pretty crazy, right? So there's two ways to think about food, uh, in my advice, and that's like daily feed, slow, uh, and then slow release. So your daily feed would be something like yeah, power feed, blood and bone in a can. A lot of popular stuff these days. Concentrates. You add water, a couple of capfuls, sea salt um so you you want to do that um that would i wouldn't say daily but like your weekly kind of feed and then you want something for slow release so um with food i tell people make it some kind of like a weekly or monthly routine so what i do right is like generally lasting every friday afternoon is when i'll give stuff a watering can feed uh, and I'm doing that because not only have I got markets coming up on Sunday, but it's feeding stuff for the week after when I go into the markets, like the week after and like the week ahead. Um, and then once a month, and I generally do it at the end or the start of every month, I put the slow release fertilizer down. Now, what I do is, so when I started doing this, I went and talked to some commercial, some commercial growers who do this for a living. And one of the best bits of advice I got was Chris from Jellicabine Farms. Shout out to Chris. He's got a market at Calamunda as well. And the advice he gave me, he said, look, pick one food. And one, one thing I will say is pick one food and stick with it. Because food, you can spend actually a lot of money on food, right? Now, the best way to make it is like compost or worm farm or something like that, make your own food, but you're still going to need things like potash and like for flowering plants and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you don't really want to spend a lot of money on food and you, you want to keep, as I said before, I want to keep it nice and cheap. So I looked around what foods are out there and one of the most popular foods and actually is the one that Chris uses as well is called multi-grow and it's basically a pelletized chook poo 
um, and I won't read out the ingredients, but if you go online, just look up multi-grow chukpoo. The cool thing about it is too, right? Like a, I think it's like a 15 or a 20, 20 kilo bag. I might have that wrong, but it's about 20, $25. And when you read the ingredients on it, mate, it's incredible. Sulfate, magnesium, you know, potash, nitrogen. It's got a little bit of everything. Now, it's, is it perfect for everything? No. There's a few things like, for example, blueberries. I would say need a very specific feed. Um, garlic, um, not so much, but a few other things. Garlic's more just a bit of copper at the start and then it's okay. But yeah, look, just like right across, if you just draw across the board, mate, it's awesome. It's super cheap. It's easily available. And one of those 20, 25 kilo, 20 kilo bags, I'd say the average gardener will probably last them literally close to a year. I go through probably about I go through probably about three bags, three or four bags a year. And what I do is I so one cup, plastic cup, kind of you know like your old like a picnic cup. I do one cup per one square meter once a month. Right now sometimes. I'll actually, because it's quite a slow breakdown. The pellets do go quite hard, especially in summer. Winter will break them down a lot quicker. So in summer, sometimes I'll give them a bit of a crush up before I will put them out there. Um, and if you want to just give your paints like a quick feed, yeah, crush some of the pellets up into a fine paste, put it in some water and then like uh, add it to a watering can. And that's a good way to like uh, hit seedlings quick because the pellets do take a little while. But my general rule, say that the first or last day around the end of the month, one cup and my beds are actually 1.2 by 1.2. So I just do one cup for them and that's it. Right? And I don't muck around with any other real foods because um, the way to think about food too, right, with sea salt, going back to that, I should mention, I tell people, right, sea salt is like a coffee. It's like a coffee or a Red Bull. It's not steak or chips. Right, it's not actually a meal. So it's good for plants, but it's not actually really a food. And look, some people, you know, they've, they've loved blood and bone all, the all their life and they use that perfectly good, awesome product. Power feed um, which is also another good one. Um, making your own compost, uh, your own worm farm. That If you're getting the, the water out of a worm farm is like that multi-grow ground up in a can, basically. Not exactly, but yeah you get my drift that's the same kind of food so there's a few different ways to do it but i'll tell people yeah keep it keep it simple don't spend a lot of money on food and just have a quick easy routine um you know that you remember the only other thing um to uh, mention there that i do give my plants is potash so potash people don't realize right but the world actually runs on potash forget about bees right if we don't have potash nothing flowers so bees don't even get a crack at the flowers because there is no flowers right and i've been down the potash rabbit hole and i won't even go into it now but it's actually quite interesting it's like it's like bigger than petrol it's crazy like uh but anyway so you can buy potash in a little packet from your local nursery or bunnings about 10 bucks for a pack and basically what it does is uh I'll, yeah like i said i won't going to all the scientific because I'll mess it up but basically it, it helps the fl plant flower so I think one little trick that I find is I wait till I see flowers so any veggie um, 
tomatoes, chilies, like eggplants, anything, right? Anything that flowers, I wait till I see one or two, then I give it a feed. And then probably like once a month after that, I'll hit it with potash to keep it flowering, like over the season. And especially telltale sign, if you've got chilies or anything, right, and you're getting flowers, but they're dropping, so they flower up and then they drop. So if you look at the base of your chili pots, for example, and you're seeing a bunch of flowers, 100% sure sign that that soil is lacking potash and it's lacking the nutrients in order to let those flowers stick. The other thing is what I find is it just you get more flowers. You get a lot more flowers. So yeah, potash, sea salt, power feed once a week kind of thing. Um, sometimes, especially at the start, and then multi-grow. That's it. That's all I do for food. Um, so we'll keep it moving. So moving to watering, uh, I think I might have already covered this at the start um, about when I mentioned the tomatoes. If you don't water every day, so uh, some things like beetroot, and look, you kind of just get to know just by plants. But uh, I don't water generally. Like uh, so interesting setup I've got too, right? Is so I should mention this. I've got no irrigation. I decided. To go when I decided to set my garden up one of the decisions I made was no irrigation because I'm trying to be as close to how I think humans should be growing veggies as possible the other thing is money right I didn't really want to spend the money problem and look it is more work to hand water right but here's the thing about that I still have sprinklers which you know and I have a automatic tap thing with timer settings and Four different hoses off that um, but what I'll, there's two things about it I, if you just rely on irrigation right you won't go out there as much and the thing I like about hand watering right is that it makes me go in the garden it makes me go outside every day twice a day so you know what's happening you can see if something's dropping off nothing's a surprise like you can pick those tomatoes because they're ready you know like oh a rat's getting into that I need to set a trap there um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I like the fact that I go out there. The other thing is it's only really, it's probably four months of the year. And like in winter, I just don't water like at all. Um, and that's like winter's not all year. And it depends obviously on our, you know, like we have periods there, like maybe around Easter, you start getting some rain, but you might water one week out of the month or something like that, you know, and if you're using pea straw, now, another little tip I should tell you about water before I forget. So any kind of pot or garden bed or anything, right? General rule, push your finger into the soil, right? About like half your finger length or to a finger length kind of thing. If it's still damp down there, it doesn't need water, right? If it's starting to feel dry, like half finger length down, you know, down to your middle knuckle kind of thing, it probably needs water. So, yeah, um... It's only really like a few months of the year. I hand water because then that way you can water at the base of plants. Sprinklers will like ruin your pumpkins, you know, because of all the water that gets on there on the leaf, then you'll get mildew. The sunburn will also, you know, uh, you get water droplets and then the sun hits it. It acts like little magnifying glasses. It'll burn it. I like the fact that with hand watering, I'm controlling where and what I'm putting with the water. And like I said, I still got sprinklers, which I put, you know, uh, on poles and they'll do like, you know, but I'm watering real early in the morning, uh, mostly in the evening. And sometimes like 
I'll hit beetroots in the middle of the day because I just need the water to cool them off a little bit. Otherwise, they'll droop. And look, they'll droop anyway on a 40-degree day. There's nothing you can do about that. Shade cloth will, will probably help that, but you just got to ride it out. And some summers we get no 40s, some we get lots. So, yeah. Um, so that's watering pretty much. Um, yeah, I did mention water at the base. Overhaul watering is, uh, is uh, never good for anything. Um, so I did, I already kind of covered compost, um, but I've got it here in my notes. So yeah, if you can make, you make your own soil, really that's the ideal way to go. So the other thing is once you start getting a bit of a garden going right, you'll get a reasonable amount of what I call garden waste. You know, and at the end of season when you're pulling certain plants out, like so nothing, none of that goes in the bin anymore. It goes into compost, you know, you turn it into dirt. And then when you're re-topping up your veggies gardens, and look, you don't want to put straight compost into a garden bed because it's way too rich. It's actually too much food. So I just like split it with other soil, spread it around, top my beds up with that. Um, and I did mention uh, you can use leaves. People ask me about eucalyptus leaves and stuff like that and grass clippings. Look, you can use them. To be honest, there's not a lot of food in them. It's not zero, but yeah, you're better off like, you know, kitchen scraps even, or just any kind of like, you know, after you've pulled your corn out, you know, and you get all your corn husks and you pull your corn plants out, don't throw the corn in the bin, you know, same with your broccolis at the end of the second or third season. Um, <clears throat> you want to just, um, you know, when you're pulling stuff out, put it in the compost and you'll soon get like a pretty good pile going. And there's a few different ways to compost bins or even just like a couple of pallets make like a little shelter that's another podcast google that there's a few different ways to do it the other thing is um which i to finish up with and one of the most important things is uh pest control and basically it's been really interesting because when i first started growing veggies i was just growing common varieties a lot of gmo stuff and i lived in the suburbs and literally like some days you would walk out there in the morning and there'd be nothing on your plants and they'd look amazing and you'd walk out there two hours later and they're covered in aphids or you know other some other kind of bugs or caterpillars you know so what happens in suburbia is that all the houses are close together so it's real easy for them to jump from one place to another um, and a lot of these insects are actually airborne so they'll move quite easily um, the other thing is i don't know what it is but since i started growing heirlooms i've just noticed less pests the plants themselves i think are just more resilient to the pests but I've just noticed, like, yeah, I just don't get as much stuff. Now, I think part of that is the fact that we've moved back up the hill to be, like, in the in the bush, you know, and we're in what would be called semi-rural, I guess, like a large block, but in a uh, in a suburb still. But, yeah, and the hills behind Galamunda. And, um, <clears throat> pardon me, um, I just don't really get any pests. The other thing is the way we plant, we tend to mix stuff up and... It's called companion planting. And when you, you look into it, um, so the American Indians have got what they call like a three-tier system. So they will grow corn, then they'll grow beans, which grows up the corn. Now, one of them takes nitrogen out of the soil, the other puts nitrogen back in the soil, and then they'll grow like their pumpkins. The Lakota people grow their Lakota pumpkins, which we've also got. We grow the Lakotas as well, and they will grow them here on the base, so in the bottom of the corn. 
So then I started doing the same thing even with tomatoes. Like if you've got tomatoes that grow high, I'll grow like watermelons under the tomatoes. The plants kind of look after each other. One provides a bit of shade. And, you know, there's a few things in terms of pest control you can do. Like um, one of the best plants, on two couple of things, peppermint and dill. I don't know what it is about those things, but ants definitely don't like peppermint. If you're trying to keep pests or just bugs out of an area, yeah, plant peppermint. You know, you can buy like cheap trays of like, you know, $3 and you'll get like eight little peppermint seedlings from, you know, uh, your, your local nursery. Plant them out at the bottom of your tomatoes and other stuff like that and it'll definitely stop like a lot of those critters coming around. The other thing is that what dill does is it brings ladybugs. 100%, if you plant dill in your garden, you will walk out there one day and see ladybugs on them. And if you've got an enclosed garden, right, you can actually go online. There's places you can buy ladybugs. Because what they do is they eat aphids and they'll eat all sorts. So they'll climb off your dill, they'll go on my tomato plants, they'll clean them during the day and then they'll come back like no sprays. So you want to do as much of that as possible, right? But you're not going to get everything that way, right? But if you do that, the other thing I find that I mostly get hammered by, right, is the white moths. Because they'll lay eggs which produce green caterpillars and they love broccoli leaves. And look, Here's the thing about pest control as well, right? I generally don't like to spray and don't like to kill things that I don't have to, right? And it's not that I'm a full-on greenie or anything, but it's just like uh, I'm just not into like widespread doing things that you don't have to do, right? So my general rule is, right, if I get a few, I don't worry about it. And yes, some of my broccoli can look like some of the leaves are getting smashed, you know, sometimes, but as long as like they're not really killing the plant or affecting it, I don't worry about it, right? If they are killing the plant, they are affecting it, I'll literally just go over by hand, pick them off. And generally, I just pick off the badly affected leaves and that'll have a few caterpillars on them. I give them to my chooks, right, and they turn them into eggs. So I generally don't spray. But the one thing I did find that you can do a little tip, which is not a gimmick thing, but it definitely works. Um, you can make paper butterflies, right, white butterflies, or, you know, the white clips that come on the top of your bread packets? I keep them. And I clip them on the top of all my broccolis because these little white moths, right, I read, oh, they're territorial. And I saw this thing, oh, put like a white butterfly scarecrow. And I was like, ah, oh, that smells like bullshit to me, but I'll give it a go. So I gave it a go and oh, honestly, it works. I've observed them heaps of times. If they come down and they see something white at the top there, basically they move on kind of thing. So, and look, it won't stop every single one, I'm sure. But like I said, it'll put a dent in it. The other thing is going back to companion planting. Mix stuff up a bit, right? But here's the thing. When I say mix stuff up, you want to be real careful because like a mistake that I've made um, is putting my tomatoes in all different places all over the garden, right? You really want to water all your tomatoes together, right? Because they require a different watering cycle than say beetroots. So if you're watering your beetroots like every day and your tomatoes are next to them, they're going to get soaked. So just, you still want to jumble stuff up, but just still keep that in mind when you think about like placement and where you're going to put things and how much water is it going to get because it does make a big difference. And, you know, like, it's funny because like when I first started, so I buy my seed initially, I keep probably 70, 80% of our seed we produce ourselves these days. Um, I buy a little bit from Diggers Club, who are the Australian heirloom people. I buy a bit from uh, Baker's Creek, 
who are the American heirloom people. If you look them up, their seed catalog is insane. It's if you're into that sort of stuff, I recommend ordering that one. Yeah, it'll blow your mind. The first year I grew like 20 or 30 different beans. There's like 2,000 or 3,000 different types of beans in there, right? But you end up getting it down to just like you realize there's only a few that you need. It's like tomatoes. We used to grow 30. Now we grow kind of about half a dozen, 10 different varieties. That's it. Probably five or six main sellers. Anyway, and I've got another guy in uh, France in uh, just out of Paris, and he's uh, an heirloom. He's got an heirloom farm there. Anyway, when I first started growing, you know, I showed him pictures, you know, uh, about 10 years ago, I showed him pictures of my garden, and he, he says to me, no, 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 you Aussies, you know, like, you put all your potatoes here, all your watermelons here, all your tomatoes here. He's like, he basically explained to me, he showed me his garden, and it's mixed up, but it's not. And what I mean by that is, like I said, Tomatoes are still together, but they've got rock melons growing underneath them. And he's got all these different companion plantings. Herbs are really good, right? And actually, um, that's one thing I should mention before um, I wrap up is the is your herb garden. I'll come back to that. Um, but my, my friend's guy's like, mate, mix it all up, basically. You'll just find by nature you get less pests, right? Thanks. For example, so now... We grow a lot of colourful stuff. It's not all just green. So in winter, we grow the Sicily purple cauliflower, right? Now, I looked into it because I research every variety I go, we, we grow, because when people come to ask you about it, you've got to know what you're talking about. So the reason they actually, the Italians invented this, right, was basically pest control. Because, you know, nature has a few different colours, right? Like the poisonous frogs, bright orange, bright yellow. Other animals, no, don't eat that, basically. It's like a warning sign. It's poison, right? So they, the Italians somehow figured out that if you grow purple cauliflowers, right, which they were very smart because it's not genetic engineering. It's basically cross-pollination. Um, but that's how a lot of heirloom tomatoes are made, by mixing, like, two together. And then, um, yeah, very clever. They worked out how to make purple. And they started realizing, right, oh, birds would fly over. They see purple and they keep flying kind of thing. And, you know, other pests and bugs and basically observe. So, yeah, if you kind of mix your garden up, make it look a bit more colorful, you know, less appealing, you know, to, to those kind of pests, you will overall reduce your footprint. The other thing is with pest control, what I'm talking about, no single one thing is the cure, right? But a few of these things all together make a difference. So, okay, now let's, you do need a spray, right? So my recommendation is like some kind of natural spray, like, uh, <clears throat> I mean, neem oil or I use eco oil, which is basically, to be honest, just glorified vinegar. And if you're really into that, you can actually go online. You can make like your own pest control spray, like glorified vinegar. Back in the day, right, the Romans, they were using, like, crushing up garlic, putting it in oil with uh, citrus and chilli. And they'd find that, like, that would kill, kill aphids or even just spraying olive oil onto uh, onto uh, plants, you know, would, would make a difference. Now, the reason I use eco on that is because I find pyrethium and a lot of these modern chemicals for the, for the heirlooms that we grow, it freaks them out really stresses them out yeah we'll kill the bugs but it also might kill the plant so 400 years ago what did they use you know on my rock melons 400 years ago probably something that looked like eco oil um, like i said you can make it and you can buy it in concentrate form it's very gentle on the plants 
the main tip I'll give people about spraying plants, right? Sunset only. Never do it at the start of a day. Definitely never do it in the middle of a hot day, right? Because it and never spray on the top side of the leaves, because it literally will burn them. It literally will sunburn them. So you want to be spraying on the underside of the leaves because that's where the critters are. And you know, if I get aphids, generally one spray. Then again, maybe the next day you'll get a few, and then after that, that's it. Um, <coughs> pardon me um, so yeah underside and the plant does go to sleep at night so if you're spraying underside it'll be less less a lot less stress on the plant um, now the other thing about uh, pets I'll get to mice and rats the main issue yeah they're going to have is snails and especially certain times of year here in winter they'll smash everything so little tip about that don't keep a lot of weedy, grassy cover and where they can be hanging out, right? And what I do, like with my beetroots, right, if they're getting bad, and at times they do, so I'll go out there and I'll literally call it snail hunting. So I'll go out there, I'll get a bucket, and I'll go at night. So in the evening, like, you know, not late or anything, but just after tea, go out in the evening, get a bucket, and I'll just hand pick them, and I'll, like, same thing again, I'll give them to my chooks, and they turn them into eggs, right? Um, there's never any shortage of snails on this earth uh, and they will do a lot of damage to your plants so you you know part of hunter gatherer is some kind of pest control but like I said you know I don't like to spray and see you know even a snail suffer kind of thing and I don't believe in pellets you know we got chooks we got dogs so not really an option for me poison so what I do is I just go out there and hand pick them, right? And you'll think, oh, it's a lot of effort, right? The other thing is no one's going out there every night, right? What happens is this. The first night, you'll get lots. The second night, you'll get a few. I guarantee you by the third, fourth night, you'll struggle to find one. And it's literally just when you see them, they're getting bad. So, okay, this week we're snail hunting. We're going out there one night. We're going to put a bit of effort into it. Because, you know, a lot of people, like, I know people do this, right? Because they come to my store and they say, oh, yeah, the snails smashed it. And I was like, well, why did you let them? Right? You can just walk out there and pick them off. It's not like hunting tigers. It's not that hard. And you'll get to see they like hanging out in cool spots and all the rest of it. So, yeah, you've got to make some kind of concerted effort, you know. Um, so, yeah, moving on to the other number one pest you're going to have in pretty much anywhere in suburbia is mice and rats. And they will do a lot of damage and it's a constant thing and there's a few things about this so like i said i don't like killing animals for fun right but uh you know having coming from farmers my grandparents both farmers my sisters both farmers uh spent a lot of time on farms worked on farms you know pest control is part of it right and you know i don't like killing animals just for fun but you know a fox will will kill just for fun he'll kill all your chooks and not even eat them right so it's an introduced animal so as far as i'm concerned i'm happy with you know the fact that you know they're always going to exist somewhere but it ain't going to be around my chooks right so you want to clean humane kill you don't want an animal to suffer right so when me and Cav go out in the farm he's got a thermal scope 243 we're talking headshots from you know 300 yards they didn't never even know what happened so it's as humane as possible so i try to apply that theory to mice and rats i try to be as humane as possible now 
that's kind of why I don't like poisons, right? Because they will die a horrible death. And a lot of people will throw baits in the roof. And look, I've done that as well. So my main sort of like uh, system these days I find has worked the best is trapping. And when I say trapping, I mean like walk-in traps, right? Um, my mate, uh, rest in peace, my mate Wilkie, he taught me trapping back in the day for all sorts of animals in the Australian bush, but also trapping mice and rats like around your house. And I don't know if anybody, uh, any fans here of the show alone, but that's one of my favourite shows. You'll be amazed how much food people can get from trapping mice with a stick and a rock inside their shelters. <laughs> people have survived on that stuff for weeks. But anyway, not to eat. But yeah, trapping has always uh, kind of interested me as a skill. Uh, I think it's important skill for me to have as a, you know, call myself a bushman or whatever. Like to know, you know, that's part of the reason why I got into fishing, hunting and gardening was because I always had this inert desire to not rely on anybody or anything, uh, basically. So back to trapping, I've found over the years, my mate Wilkie that taught me those snap traps, right, that snap down, you'll get a few. And look, some of the new ones, the new plastic ones actually aren't bad. You know, the old wooden one's pretty much outdated. But here's the thing, right? A lot of rats and mice like uh, anything, right? They're, you know, the older ones are smart. They know. My mate Wookie used to have like this bit of a sand patch, right? And we used to, he used to rake it and he would show me, right? And he'd put snap traps down. And then in the, you know, the next day he would like send me a photo on his phone. And there'd be footprints all right up to the trap, all right around it, right around it. And they just don't touch the bait because they know they're not stupid, right? If you're a rat and you're a couple of years old, you don't get to be a couple of years old without being smart about what you put in your mouth, right? So it's the same with baits. Like, yeah, you'll get a few, especially the new established ones, but the older, smarter ones that are really the ones you want to knock out, they're the ones that are breeding. You're not going to get them, right? So I've found walk-in traps. One of the best traps I ever had was one of those electronic night ran on like a bunch of batteries they would walk in they'd step across two metal plates zap zap and dead straight away that was probably the best trap i ever had right only problem with it was i've and the reason i never bought another one was because eventually they rust right if you've got a walk-in cage type trap where they so it's got a fold-up door at the front they walk in the bait and the uh, trap set trigger is at the back they step on the plate, the door shuts. These last forever, right? They're made out of stainless. And I've found, because mice and rats, right, they like walking into spaces. Now, there's a mouse version you can buy as well, which is a little tray. It's got like a little ramp they have to walk up into, get up, and they drop in. And it's got a clear cover so you can see when there's one in there. So I use them for mice, and I use the walk-in traps for rats. Now, how to dispose of them, right? So... Uh, I basically did a bit of research into this. Now, you can knock them on the head, right? That's the quickest way. But here's the problem, right? They're in a cage. Now, if you tip them out into a bag, to me, that's all just kind of added stress. And then, you know, it's running around in the bottom of the bag and what, you're going to club it? Like, it's getting messy. What if you miss? Is it going to die straight away? Yes, it might. Um you know, it's not really the preferred option in my view. So talking to a vet, uh, I asked my vet or a vet, what do you think is the most humane way? And they said drowning. 
they said, look, it's not maybe as nice for the humans, but it's literally just like one breath. The other thing is it's quick and easy. Um, you're not mucking around, like I said, trying to hit them or whatever. Um, if I had a big enough old school freezer, I would actually consider that. But here's the thing with that too, right? It freezes to death. I don't know if that sounds too pleasant either, really, right? I'm going... I think the most quick, the quickest way is the most humane way in my view. And that's how I came to my decision. So like I said, I don't like killing animals for fun, right? And there's a few things about it. So what I do is I don't watch, right? So I have a large, it's a big plastic container that the cage will fully be submerged in. So there's no way, you know, they can get any air at the top or anything. Um, and I get that ready. And then I just quickly pick it up, don't muck around with it, just pick it up straight in there and then I'll walk away and I don't watch. And it's mainly just because I just don't want to watch. I just, these days I'm kind of like half a Buddhist so I just try to stay away from any kind of negative energy or any kind of negative association. I don't want to stand there and watch an animal suffer. Uh, and then I either dispose of them in the bin or... Uh, we actually have kookaburras that come to our place and because like I said I'm kind of half a Buddhist I think that when we die we should just go back and you know part of my philosophy about all this is leaving the smallest footprint you know possible but you know based on the belief that there's everything that I need on the earth to survive you know it's all been provided for me um, you just got to look after it so yeah so um, you know instead of chucking them in the bin I've got a spot down the back where I put them. The kookaburras know that I put them there. They'll come down and then they eat them. And the cool thing is no poison. So that kookaburra can at least, you know, get a feed out of that mouse or the rat or whatever. And yeah, no poisons involved. Uh, you know, the animal didn't go to waste. Um, and what I should mention too about pest control, the reason so I kill them and don't relocate them, right, is because... Uh, as a hunter, I understand, right, that all animals actually have like a daily route, right? And so when I start, because I always have customers come, it's one of the things I ask me about the moats, I've got rats, what do I do, right? They, at some, you've got to find out where they're coming in. They're coming in at some point, right? So you want to try to make your property as mouse or as rat proof as possible, right? But, you know, that's obviously very hard, especially if you've got fences and, but find out where they're coming, right? And then, what happened that's where i generally set my traps right because if animals get to know right and don't worry there's this weird thing that happens right and i've seen it many times before and i'll tell you a quick story in a sec they just get to know right that oh i'm not saying they know that guy kills rats or they trap right but they just get to know like don't go there like and if you can make something so that it's not on their route and they have to go out and they have to go around or it's a little bit harder or as soon as they do start coming on your property they're eliminated what happens is i get runs of like months and months and months and months of nothing and then like i'll get a few right and i'll be get a few mice um, and i'll get a few rats and then months and months and months and months of nothing and the cool you know look the other thing is i encourage you to talk to your neighbors right because if everybody puts some kind of effort in and does that especially like in a small area you can kind of keep it down to virtually nothing in your area. Because what happens is these animals are breeding so fast, right, that the, the ones that are coming to your place are the ones that are moving out. So they're moving out, they move to, like, next door, okay, they're finding their own territory. 
and about animals knowing right so i got this spot where i used to go fishing in shark bay and it's an island down in the bottom of the bay now half of that island is a marine park no fishing no spear fishing none of that right the other half of that island is you're allowed to fish right i've been there many times so at least at least a dozen probably times right on several different trips right that half of the island that's not a marine park you will not even see a fish you won't even see a fish right go around the back to the bit that's a marine park and i kid you not right where the line is on the sign on the sand literally from that line on to the marine park so it's packed full of snapper it's packed full of bulging groper like you will not believe it and they know they get to know people don't come on this side or if you come around here or whatever you don't get caught i could give you a bunch of examples i've seen of that in the hunting world with deer as well and also other species of fish in certain areas trust me right animals get to know mice and rats they might be simpler but they still know so what you really want to do is you want to make your place a no-go zone for them and then as soon as they come there you're dealing with them straight away um so yeah oh, the other thing i wanted to mention before i go i got wrote down here is herb garden so as a part of your garden you want your compost area your worm farm you want your chooks you want your you know your grow station you want your some kind of greenhouse or some kind of even if you're just using one of them little ones some kind of propagation area and some kind of tables like you know raised up your main growing areas and then you also want herb garden and probably a little bit of a tip um, with that is i tell people if possible put it like almost like right outside your kitchen door or wherever your kitchen is almost like as close to that because I started off with my herb garden down the back and it was in a good spot, but then I realized oh, because I had to walk across the little yard, humans are lazy. So I moved it down to like as close to the kitchen as can be. The other thing is it's a lot nicer to look at, right? So, and my herb garden is set up on wooden pallets. So what I said before about the pots, I've got them set up on wooden pallets so that there's a bit of space underneath they drain. And I've got a few flowers and stuff in there as well, but you know, I've got uh, um, coriander, a couple of different types of mint, you know, like a curry bush, a few different types of sage because I really like sage. Just pick the leaves off and dust them in flour, quickly fry them, put them on the top of a meal, sage chips, like they're beautiful gourmet kind of stuff. Uh, what else have I got out there? Dill, um, and then various varieties, a few different you know uh lettuces um vietnamese mint um rosemary couple of different types of thyme um uh what's the other one i've got uh the italian herbs um i've got a few different ones of those so yeah and i'll make up like if i get too many you just pick the leaves dry them out in the dehydrator another good piece of equipment that you need if you're going to be a Bit of a homestead or permaculture get yourself a dehydrator because the amount of stuff i use that for it's constantly running it's drying out chilies fruit jerky all sorts of different stuff so yeah and just have your herb garden nice and close i find if you have it closer to the house or close by you'll water it more often as well and yeah you'll tend to use it a lot and you know it's something i really enjoy doing as a bit of a you know want to be aspiring chef 
I did write in my yearbook at school that I wanted to be a chef. I went and did it for as a little while and realised, cool hobby, bad job. Um, although that's a lie. I actually would like to do something in that field one day. But uh, yeah, it's very nice being able to walk out there and you can't beat fresh herbs. And like, think about the amount of money you waste like buying those herb things from the supermarkets. And guaranteed, they're not as fresh or as nice as what you're going to grow and they're always like what happens to them you use a couple off there or you open it up and it's brown and soggy inside and it's like you know it's like even like we gave up buying coleslaws now you know we just make our own because if even if you just buy the ingredients and make it yourself it's way nicer way fresher and anything that comes in a packet now like yeah i will just give it a miss it's just money you don't need to really spend so yeah so a bit of a ramble this potty uh what are we up to yeah, it's gone a fair while, but uh, that's what I do. So, yeah, and look, that was pretty much just like a basic guide. There was a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. Um, and look, as you can tell, I'm a kind of bit of a deep person. It's not just about growing veggies. There's a whole, you know, philosophy kind of side, um, you know, between it. But And look, you know, just summarizing up, right, the, the main thing that I tell people, right, is that you you don't go from... I think it's the number one reason why I reckon as well, right, like people don't actually uh, change their diets, right, is because this is what happens, right, and I'm using this as an analogy to gardening. What happens is people try to go from like, let's say, bad boy, right, like eating chips and hamburgers and all the food that's wrong for you. People try to go from bad boy to good boy like that. Oh, I'm going on a diet. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Man, I've got news for you. It ain't going to work, right? The best way to actually fix that stuff and how I kind of discovered this was through my rehab uh, from heart surgery is that you make, it's literally one step at a time. You just make small changes, small changes. And I was like, you know, with my garden, I like, I literally just bought one or two beds at a time, added a couple beds, added a couple more, added a couple more. You know, we've only been in this place about three years now and I'm, we're up to like 30 something, 35 beds right by the end of uh, this season it'll be like 40 45 so you just what i'm saying is like don't think you've got to do it all at once just start somewhere literally just like a few pots bison parsley like because it trust me once you grow something and then cook a meal from it it will inspire you you want to do it more and then you know just slowly over time you know like i would impress too right like just if i know this is not 100 percent possible because i still go through them myself right but just try to get supermarkets out of your life you just don't need them right like um you can buy most of that produce from a farmer's market somewhere in this country no matter where you are and sometimes people will say oh but the farmer's market's more expensive right i'm calling bullshit on that as well right like if you've got a job and you're working full-time in this country, right? 100 bucks could fall out of your wallet every week and nothing would have happened to your life, right? So why wouldn't you spend a bit of extra money to have the best quality produce? And like going back to the story about Gary Brecker, right? For 22 years, he predicted people's, when they're when they going to die, right? Based on their health records, right? And there's a few simple things will add time to your life right and that's one of them is just eliminate the wholesale and all that transport freight side of it right if you just buy direct 
off a grower, the person who grows it, or for example, right, so at Calamunda Farmers Markets, there's Eurochef, right? Their pigs, they can show you the farm, they can take you there. I've been there, you can see them running around the paddock, right? Lindley Valley Pork, it's the same thing, right? You're buying off the people who raise the animals, right? They go straight to the market, that's it. Like, you're eliminating, you know, all the preservatives, all the processing, all that other stuff. It's just not necessary, right? Straight away, you'll be healthier. And when people say it costs more, right? I don't know. I don't don't know that we spend any more or less on that kind of stuff than we ever used to before. It's just that now we, we plan things a bit better and you definitely like notice prices and there's plenty of farmers around like you can hook up and uh you know buy stuff off direct you go to a farmer's market it's full of them you know uh is one of the best but there's manning and all the other ones around perth um you can go there you can buy off the the grower direct and it's just you know the the, the quality is just so much better than uh you know anything you'll find you know and look supermarkets in australia as a whole i'd say not bad no, definitely not as bad as like other parts in the world. But, you know, I just, some of the, particularly a lot of the veggies, the problem there is the freight, how long they've been sitting around. And a lot of the actual protein produce is not bad, but some of those chickens there, people don't realise how some of those are being kept. And look, people don't realise like, you've got to go, you know, <clears throat> I'll, I'll use a little example for the wrap this up, right, because, Here's one of my bugbears, right? Uh, bacon, right? If you go look on a supermarket shelf, right, there's an Australian pork pink sticker, right? In a supermarket, try and find any pork or ham products that have got that sticker on it, right? I'll save you the time. You've got Miguel's range of stuff and maybe the odd other bit, that's it. All that bacon is imported. They're all stall-kept animals from indonesia and america and america's not as bad but they still have practices that i don't subscribe to right if i'm going to eat animal it's got to have had a good life outdoors in a paddock i'm not interested in stall bread you know pellet fed stuff right and once you've tasted both of them side by side you'll know exactly what i mean right so a lot of people if you ask people right should there be a sticker on it if it's from overseas they'll say yes right and i say would you prefer to buy australian bacon or st- indonesian stall fed you know stall kept pigs every, every person you come across in the supermarket will say oh australian bacon and then they'll turn around and they'll buy the other one and it's mainly because education right they don't know people don't know where their food's coming from anymore there's been this fucking disconnect with their food and that's why i do what i do because I want to be reconnected and I want to make sure I know where everything's coming from, right? And it shits me that people buy this imported stuff and it's just crap, right? So yeah, there's just a little example of knowing where your food comes from and how it's been kept. And I think it's really important for humans. I know it's something that Jamie Oliver's big on as well because you'll find that um, those people who are sort of living like that well, are actually the people that look after the environment, you know, and like, you know, I've got greening friends, right? And I've, half my friends are hunters as well, right? And sometimes the greening friends will have a go at the hunters, right? 
But I'm telling you, those people that are, you know, living that lifestyle, they are the ones looking after the land. They're the people that are out there that are actually looking after the animals because it's their resource. They don't want it to go away. You know what I mean? And, um, yeah, it's interesting uh, when you get back to the basics and how it connects to our DNA. And forgive me if I've already told this story, but, you know, I've taken a few people back in the day, you know, to the river you catch a flathead, you cook it on fire next to the river. <laughs> and I've had like CEOs of companies, like literally like on the side of the river in tears, like saying like, what the, what's happening to me? What's happening to me? <laughs> and I was just explaining. I say, hey, look, this is just like what we're supposed to be doing. That's why it feels so good because you just, there's no satisfaction in the tin from the shops. You know what I mean? Whereas like you go and it's like, I just tell them, take your shoes off, feel the sand. You cook them a fish they caught and like, yeah, pardon me. <clears throat> I've had guys in tears, you know, and like, but yeah, so there's a little bit of a talk. And uh, as you can see, it's it, it's more about uh, just growing than growing. And there's something that happens and uh, it's a really big trend I've seen, uh, you know, really taking off and in the last few years. And it's something that's like been incredibly satisfying to me. Um, and there's a lot more to it. Um, but I just thought I would put this together as a bit of a done this talk a few times. I'll be doing this talk again if you're interested. I normally do it at the start of spring at the Kalamunda Farmers Markets. <clears throat> you can come see me there. I'm there every Sunday except for winter. Or you can look me up, obviously, through here, Hills Bloke. Send me a message or Heirloom Valley Seedlings uh, on Facebook. If you're interested in the growing part of it, um, I'm happy to help anybody like get set up. I'm not really interested in money uh, at all. I'm not I'm not a rich guy, but I've done a ride in life, and uh, yeah, I I tell people I broke up with money, so it's not what motivates me anymore. People said to me, "Oh, you should franchise this out." Like, no, honestly, I'm not. I'm just not interested. <laughs> I'll help people get set up for sure, but. Uh, yeah, they can they can keep the money and look, you know, we need we need a hundred people doing this like in every city, you know, and and that's a big part of this. And I, I tell people as well, you know, I probably should wrap up on this. That one of the things I tell my uh, customers is like I tell them I don't ask for anything, but I do ask for one thing, right? Once you know how, and once you learn, pass it on to someone else because that's how we that's how we keep this going and. You know, we're getting to a situation on this planet where, you know, like you have to ask for permission to go fishing. Yeah, you need a license to, you know, go and do all that. And, you know, they they want to, you know, you can't even grow produce and like sell it at home, you know. And uh, to me, that's getting to a point where the government's just got way too much input in people's lives. And I honestly think... Uh, Tim, the guy in the hat's right. The best system that humans have ever had is small communities of 100, 120 people of uh, hunter-gatherer growing all their own stuff, just spending your day doing that, not sitting in an office punching out numbers. So, yeah, hope you've all enjoyed this one. Bit of an unusual pod. I've got a few coming up. I should have mentioned I took a break, obviously, uh, in December. I didn't have anyone booked. Um, I decided to just take a break because uh, it is a reasonable amount of work and uh, hit the ground running in January, which is what I'm doing, recording another one tomorrow and I've got another one next week. 
So yeah, uh, we're back at it. A few more coming up, and uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in again, everyone. And uh, if you want to contact me, shoot me a message. Alrighty, yeah, look after yourselves, everyone. Peace. Intense chemistry, they expect the list when we sound the list. Western supremacy, intense chemistry, best be aware.